0: please be seated. Well, as we begin a new year, we renew our study in the Gospel of John, and so I invite you to open to John chapter 11. This is a packed passage, and so we'll begin our reading in verse 1, and we'll read until we stop reading. Um, (laughs) But we won't cover the entire chapter uh, today. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany the the village of Mary and her sister Martha it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill and just as a side note the interesting thing about this is that doesn't take place until the next chapter so John is uh, believing that the people he's writing to have some understanding and probably awareness of them but he's he's foreshadowing there picking up again in verse 3 so the sisters sent to Jesus saying Lord Then after this, he said to his disciples, "'Let us go to Judea again.' The disciples said to him, "'Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, "'and are you going there again?' Jesus answered, "'Are there not 12 hours in the day?' "'If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble "'because he sees the light of this world. "'But if anyone walks in the night,' he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's stop there for now. Let's pray that the Lord would speak to us. Our Father, we do come this day. We thank you for the word uh, that you have given us that is so abounding in, um, in, in truth, telling us about ourselves and about you and how you have acted through history to bring us to you and reminding us of how we might live. I pray, Lord, that through these words we consider today, that you might also guide us to give us encouragements, to give us direction, to give us hope, and to give us assurance that we may walk with you in faith and in joy to your glory and to our good. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen. They were a happy little family, two sisters and a brother living in a quiet, quaint community just a, a few miles from Jerusalem, in a house presumably passed on to them when their parents had passed on. And somewhere along the line, they had become friends with a radical young rabbi who was to say the least a controversial figure, at least among the Jews living in a Roman kingdom. But this radical young rabbi was also a a miracle worker named Jesus from Nazareth. And as this young family had opened their hearts to him, they had also opened their home to him. And it seems evident from our passage and the dynamic of the relationship that Jesus had enjoyed their hospitality whenever he was in that area. He was very likely to be a a frequent, have been a frequent visitor uh, to their home. But even though I'm sure that Jesus had a great appreciation for the hospitality that they had extended to him and had enjoyed the friendship that they had offered him, the relational link that they had with the Lord did not insulate them from difficulty and it did not immunize them from suffering. And here in our passage, we see that in this quiet little town of of Bethany, that the ominous dark storm clouds of life gathered and hovered over their little home. Tragedy struck as suddenly as lightning and leaving an entire family in shock. And even though they were friends of the Lord, and even though they loved the Lord, and it's evident and repeated in our text that the Lord loved them, this little family went through a very difficult time. We need to recognize from this passage that even those of us who have opened our heart to the Lord, and in some cases we might even say that our heart has become a home to the Lord, is that we need to understand that this does not insulate us from hardship or the tragedies of life. And it's vitally important that we understand that because sometimes many of us have experienced these difficulties, some of them relatively mild, others serious uh, and intense, and, and we are stunned, not that such tragedies exist, but that God would allow us, the ones that he says that he loves, to go through this. And so we need to be aware that this is common to life and common even to those that God loves. And it is not an indication of God's lack of love or affection or inability to be at work. It is God working out his purpose and calling us to be engaged in his purpose as well. In our text this morning, what we see not only is this truth but in a a way that enables us to understand but it also reveals to us a way that we can respond. I think one of the first things that we need to see that seems to be screaming from this page, is that God's glory is displayed in ways that we don't always recognize. Now, when I think about that principle, a scene from a movie comes to mind. The movie is Forrest Gump, packed full of wonderful theological illustrations. And it's a particular scene in that film that I'm sure all of you will remember. You remember that it was Forrest Gump who started the jogging craze of the 1970s. And while he was on one of his cross country uh, runs, it was a man who, Forrest says, wanted to be in the bumper sticker business, came up to him and asking him for some insights and wisdom, something that he might be able to put on a bumper sticker. And while they were running along and they were talking, Forrest steps into a dog pile. And the man just screams, ew, you just stepped in. And Forrest with sage wisdom and understanding of life just said, it happens. (laughs) And it's it's, it's, it's a wonderful metaphor, both for, it's a wonderful metaphor for life and it's a great motto for life. It's a metaphor for life because the fact is it does happen. And because that is the reality of life, that sometimes we step in it, it's important that we also are able to explain it and recognize it happens. And when it happens, it's often annoying, but when it happens and it seems purposeless, And senseless, it's more than annoying. It's incredibly frustrating. We have a case in point in our text. Lazarus was a good man. He was a young man. He seems to have been, if not the provider for his family, for his sisters, he was a significant contributor to their household. And then this happens. It happens. He becomes ill, and before long, he has died. And it seems so senseless. It seems so purposeless. And then as I look at the story, I also begin thinking of it in this way. You know, who were the ones that it really happened to in this passage? And I, I suspect it really wasn't Lazarus as much as it was to Mary and Martha. I mean, Lazarus only died. And what does the scripture tell us that happens to those who die, who belong to the Lord? Well, they go immediately to be with the Lord. They go into paradise. Two descriptions, if we think about, that would be anything but boring, even if we don't necessarily understand or know exactly what it was all entailed, you know, far more difficult were those who were left behind who had to watch him in his illness, watch him wither away, wonder what was going to become of them, how they were gonna make ends, not to mention just the pain of losing somebody that they loved. They were dying in a sense, a death that they would continue to have to live with, whereas Lazarus was just merely dying. But no matter how we look at it, either way, We look at it and it just seems to be so senseless. Why does this happen? Why does God allow it to happen? It's pointless, or so it would seem. But Jesus says, it's not, and it wasn't. Jesus was talking with his disciples. It's really a bizarre passage when you think about it in some ways. First, the cryptic way in which he speaks with them. He tells them, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Well, if somebody tells you somebody's going to sleep, I, you know if some of you come tell me that Camper's fallen asleep, I assume he's taking a nap. Um, and that's what they thought. And then he says, let's, let's go. And the disciples remind him, this is the place we just left because they want to kill you. And then he goes on to this whole idea about, well, if you walk in the daytime, and you walk in and if I'm there, I'm thinking, okay, I get all this is true. I have no idea what this has to do with what we're talking about. And if the guy's just sleeping, he's gonna get up again. And Jesus has to speak very plainly, no, he, he died. But that itself raises an interesting question because Jesus says in this passage, when he first takes to the disciples, uh, this illness that he has, it will not lead to death. But then he says he died. I mean, we have a credibility problem here for a moment. And then since dead is dead, Jesus wants to go to a place where he can be with them, which is understandable because he, he, he loves them, but the disciples point out to him um, we understand that you want to be there, but there are people there that want to kill you. There are people here there who have tried to kill you. There are people here who there who will kill you. And Jesus is clearly bent on going. And I, hadn't ever, I don't think I'd ever noticed it before, but I, I love Thomas' response in verse 16. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, all right, let's go with them. Let's go die too. In other words, I mean, there is a commitment level there that we have to appreciate, but I particularly appreciate the, kind of the sarcasm in this whole thing. And, and so off they go. But in the conversation of all these things that don't make sense, there is something that is very clear that doesn't immediately make sense, but it's the very point that Jesus is making here. And that Lazarus's illness and Lazarus' death was not pointless. It was not senseless. It had a purpose. And the purpose was so that the glory of God would be revealed in the person of Jesus, his son. You may remember a few chapters back, back in the fall, we looked at uh, the interaction that uh, Jesus had had with the man that was born blind. And the disciples had asked, okay, who had sinned? Um, his parents or him that he was born this way. Jesus said neither. He he was born into this condition so that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. And Jesus says something very similar here in this passage. Because in in verse 4 Jesus tells his disciples when they're talking about this, it is for God's glory that God's son may be glorified through it. That's the purpose of Lazarus's sickness and, and Lazarus' death. And then a little bit further later, we see in verses fourteen and fifteen, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad he wasn't there, so that you may believe. God is doing something, he is demonstrating his glory in the situation here in a way that is unexpected and frankly would be unwelcomed, not only by those here, but by anybody. But we need to notice that God's glory nevertheless was intended from the very beginning in a circumstance that we would not design, we would not appreciate. And this is not an insulated situation. God is at work and does that all the time. History is full of stories in the, that are exactly like that, that God is fulfilling his purpose and demonstrating his glory in ways that we would not expect, that we don't recognize that, that it, when it happens until we're able to look back. A number of years ago, when I was participating in the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement the, the course, um, focusing on an understanding of of global mission, both history and present strategies. One of the readings was an article um, by Ralph Winter called The, The Kingdom Strikes Back. And in that, it's from the time of Christ until near present day, chronicling different events in history where God, as we look back, we can see that he was clearly at work. And yet in the midst of those circumstances, it would seem that God almost had to have been absent. And the one that struck me most was in the period about 800 AD, when the Vikings and barbarians invaded what is now Great Britain. These ruthless, murderous people who history shows were far worse than the Nazis in their hatred of other people and their treatment of others. They came to exterminate, to eradicate, and to pillage, and to take what wasn't theirs, but they decided there it was gonna be theirs. And so they came in their ships, they invaded what is England, and they went to war on the unsuspecting villages, killed off the men, some of the women, but most of the women and the young girls, they kept as wives. Some of these invaders stayed in that area, taking these wives unwillingly. Others of these women were taken back into pagan Scandinavia to serve as wives or as concubine. And you think of a situation like that and the horror and the horrendousness of that, and no doubt any of those, because at the time Great Britain was Christianized already. And people must have been asking, where is God in the midst of this? And yet within 100 years, something amazing happened. Despite the Viking and the pagan influence that took over Great Britain, their paganism didn't take over Great Britain. The influence of the women who were Christians that were the wives that were taken by these men converted the ones who remained in England to continue to to become Christians and the area continued to be Christian. Perhaps all the more amazing is that the wives who were taken to Scandinavia, the influence that they had saturated the culture that they gave up their pagan ways and Scandinavia became Christianized. As the husbands received Christ and began following his way, there was death, there was darkness, there was hopelessness. There's no question about that. It was incredible. And yet, God was working out his purpose in what seemed to be senseless. And we understand that. And it's important for us to understand that God is still at work. And what seems so senseless and purposeless, God is still working out his purpose. And no doubt some will be asking this question. All right, well, that's fine. God's working out about his purpose. But what about my purpose? I mean, and I don't really think that that's an unreasonable question. I think we're reminded in Romans 8.28 that God says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. What that's a reminder to us of is is this, is that when we become Christians, we get converted not only from whatever we were into the family of God, but we get converted from our purposes to his purposes. That's part of the essence of being Christian. We find our purpose in God's purpose. We don't follow him in a bargain that if we'll follow you and give you praise, worship and tithes, then you'll bless all of my own purposes it's when we live that way we find the most frustrations but the whole aspect of being a christian one of the essence of being a christian is not only the faith that brings salvation but it brings purpose to our life and our lives become in line with god's purposes and therefore when god is working out his purposes we find the hope and the joy because it has become our purpose as well And that's an important perspective that we need to ask ourselves if we are seeing in our lives, if it is our attitude, whenever we are finding ourselves in difficult circumstances, whenever we're experiencing hardship, difficulty, loss, even death, whether it's physical death or death of a dream, death of a relationship, any kind of metaphorical death, we need to be asking ourselves, in the midst of understandable pain, that Jesus never says is wrong. Not only what is God doing, but am I willing To align my purpose with his purpose. We only find peace and meaning when our lives are lined up with God's purpose. But I think there's another question, and and certainly that's one of the important aspects of how we are to respond. But there is another question. How how do we get there, and and how how do we respond to pain that is inevitable to come to our lives for any of us? As I look at this passage, I think Martha provides a a great picture for us to consider because, in a very real sense, Martha is us. You know, Martha, I think, really gets shortchanged a lot of times for those of us that study the Bible. Maybe not as much as Peter. You know, everybody's going to be shocked to find out that he's not some dumb, goofy jock oaf you know, when we get to meet him in heaven. But, you know, I, I, I have to admit that my mental picture of Martha usually is as a somewhat tightly wound, cranky old spinster. But our text shows me that my initial impression is, is, is wrong. One of the things that we see in verse five that I, I find interesting is, is the nature of the relationship, because we tend to think, those of us who study the Bible and understand the Martha and the Mary and, and, and the illustrations we get from their lives, we tend to think of Mary as the, as the one who was kind of the beloved, and, and, and Martha's love, but you know Mary's lovable. But verse five of our text says this, Jesus loved Mary, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Martha comes first in in, in this text. Martha was the the first object of affection. She in no way takes a back seat to her sister here. And then in in verse 20, we see something else that is interesting because it's Martha who at one time is the one who's doing all the duty work. She's the one that, you know, reliable, trustworthy, always has the nose to the grindstone. But it's Martha who runs to Jesus when she hears that he's coming. And Mary stays at home, you know, still dealing with her own emotion. And in one sense, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And, and some might even point out, well, Martha was the older sister, and so she is technically the host, is the one that's responsible. And the responsible thing is to to, to go to their friend. but. The language indicates that she was violating ancient Eastern culture or protocol and going. And you see in her behavior that there is a hint of kind of spunk and spontaneity. But what we see that's important for us is we identify with her and how she responded is to notice what she gets right and what she gets wrong because both of the things that she does are things that are very common and we're prone to do I think what we need to notice is is first is is that what she gets right is that she's right about Jesus because what she says to Jesus when first of all she sends for Jesus come we see in her language and in her action that she believes that if Jesus is present, he can bring healing. He is the hope. He has the power. And so she sends for Jesus. And then when Jesus comes, even after he has died, Lazarus has died, what she expresses to Jesus says, Lord, I know that had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She shows a confidence in Jesus that is right and rightly placed. And she's absolutely right about these things. But we also need to see something else. There's an evidence that what I would call somewhat of a a superficial spirituality. It's not that she was shallow, but I think she exhibits what is a a superficial spirituality that is common in in almost every one of us at, at certain circumstances because what we don't see Martha doing is wrestling with the apparent contradictions between what she says she believes about Jesus and what she is now experiencing. It's not much, just mere politeness that she's saying, you know, had you been here, you know, well, why is she not upset? Doesn't Jesus care? Well, they've been around them enough to know that he, that she, that he cared and, As we would read a little bit further, we we see the demonstration of how much he cares because Jesus kind of gets together, and everybody's crying, and he's crying. He's weeping over the circumstance, and we'll look into that a little bit more next week. And didn't Jesus say that this wasn't going to lead to death? And then how long was it until she found out that when he found out that Lazarus was sick, he said, oh, he's sick. He's sick so let's hang out for a couple more days than we were planning to do. I mean, these, these kinds of things are, are shocking. And if Jesus was able to do something, then why didn't he do something? And, and what we see in her here is that she has right faith true theological principles, but in her pain, she's not wrestling with what seems to be the incongruity of what she believes and what she is feeling and what the circumstances seem to dictate. And the reality is, is that while she has right theological principles about Jesus, she has absolutely no expectations that he's going to work in her life and in these circumstances. And I believe that's the way many of us are at times as well. We cry out, the situation continues, the death, whether physical or metaphorical, occurs in our life. We remind ourselves of the truths of who God is and we move on and we don't deal with how we're really feeling. We don't deal with what seems to be the apparent incongruity. We just are polite and we continue on. But I believe God has given us this passage because he wants more for us. He wants us to understand. We need to make no mistake here. Martha is is absolutely a passionate and sincere believer. But her faith is not fleshed out. And God has much more for us as he had much more for her. So I said the first thing that we need to understand is that God's glory is displayed in ways that we don't always recognize. Second and the the last point, but related to that, and and they need to go together, is this, is that God's grace is at work, although we don't always see it. We don't always remember. Jesus is responding to her. He's responding to her lack of question, but to her pain and to her circumstance. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, looking at that phrase, kind of unpacks it in a way that I don't want it to be academic, but I think it's, an, it's, it's important as to, for us to dig in. And he writes this, the, the question here, is whether resurrection and life refer to the same thing, kind of like a a preacher's way of reinforcing, Jesus certainly does this, the repeating the pattern, elucidating what is meant by resurrection, so there's resurrection and, and there's life, or if resurrection and life refer to two complementary things. And what Carson says is the second option, that they are two distinct but complementary things is more credible, and it appears that the two components, resurrection and life, are elucidated in the two ensuing clauses. Carson says this, resurrection refers to the final resurrection of believers through Christ, whose power effects it. We see the promise of the scripture says he will come to life even if he died, but life He's referring to whoever enjoys the resurrected life that is to come on this side of the grave will still in some sense never die. In other words, there is a promise of a life that is ours when we trust in who Christ is and that he is the resurrection who has the first fruits, that we also will be resurrection with that. There is a life that is to be experienced now that will not die. Our bodies will die, but there is a life that is within us that tastes what is to come and it, that will not die. The Apostle Paul was speaking to this whole kind of experience of life related to the resurrection when he was writing to the Philippians And in Philippians 3.10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He wasn't talking about something in the future. He's talking about knowing the power of the resurrection. Jesus' case here in the text that we have is yet to come. Paul's case and in our case, it has already happened. But we, by faith, are also promised a resurrection. And that resurrection promises a life here and now. But what we need to notice is that what Martha does that keeps her from experiencing the benefit of that life is what many of us do as well as good, religious, Christian people. And we see it evidenced in in verse 22, a hint of Martha's faith and of her religion. And she reverts to a mere theological discussion in order to move the theological truths from expectation of her life. So in verse 22, we we see this. Jesus says, Look, even now, uh, um, uh, Martha says this, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Uh, And Jesus says in verse 23, your your brother will rise again. Now, we have the benefit of knowing what's gonna happen and you know, you can wait till next week if you don't know the story. Um, But uh, just you know, I hate to be a spoiler, but he'll rise again before the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Jesus has in mind here. And so Martha, understandably, because it doesn't make sense, dead people don't rise. But she moves in verse 24 and said, well, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection of the last day. She knows her theology. She's getting some comfort from her theology, but her comfort is a mere placebo because it's not really addressing the pain that she has now. She's not experiencing, she's not appropriating the life that comes because Jesus is the resurrection. And so Jesus, that's at that point that Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection, not I will be resurrected, I am the resurrection. All of the promises that have more to do than the fact that after our death that we will rise and be with Christ are wrapped up in Christ. All the benefits are in Christ, and they're appropriated by faith now, even as they were then. And Jesus is is reminding her of that. And so Carson notes this. Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus on an abstract belief in what will take place at the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide her hope. I would say it this way very simply. Knowledge of doctrine is no substitute for faith. but it is a supplement to faith. In other words, our faith is based on truth, it's based on reality. But just knowing those truths is not the essence and not all there is of the faith. And, and, and we need to look at it this for this reason because we seem to swing in two different directions and rarely hit the target because we seem to either be enamored by doctrine or we reject it and neither is correct. Doctrine alone is not sufficient without appropriating the promises of it and having that impact our lives through faith. Not mere intellectual assent, but resting and trusting in these things. But people who have encountered the dead orthodoxy of some Just decide, well, we'll just forget doctrine altogether. Then they have nothing to build their faith upon. And like Martha, many of us believe that Jesus can do anything. We just doubt that he'll do what he says in our lives. Now. Maybe someday. And this whole interaction before Jesus acts is recorded for us to see ourselves and to ask ourselves the same question that Jesus asks Martha when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And so we ask ourselves this question, a few questions, and I'm I'm wrapping up here. Do you wrestle with God when your faith and life don't seem to quite match up? I believe what we're seeing here is you should ask questions. God is not afraid of your difficult questions. And you will not have answers and therefore you will not have faith if you don't ask the questions about the trials, the difficulties, the deaths. Physical, relational, employment, you name it. The deaths that we experience in our lives. Wrestle with these and allow the truth of your faith to be applied. And do you know the gospel is not just a theological, but it's an experiential truth. See, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, it's a, de- it's a declaration of the gospel, not just of what is to come in this case or what has been, but it's a promise for now. He is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a present reality. I won't develop it much, but it's a common thing that we need to recognize. The principle of the gospel is that life comes out of death. And it's not just Jesus' death, although that's the foundation of it, but we experience it as well. Some of you know Paul Miller, whether you've read his book, Praying Life. Many of you know Paul because he's a friend of this church. Paul is developing a new book based on a concept that he's already introduced in one of his more recent books that he calls the J-curve. And the J-curve is all over this passage. And what Paul talks about in the J-curve is this, is that we experience many kinds of deaths in our life. When we experience those death, God doesn't make them purposeless. He brings life. He directs our life. He brings new life out of the deaths that we experience. And faith is to recognize that the hardships, the deaths that we experience, while they are tragic and in some cases come as a result of sin, it's not God punishing us, but he's moving us to experience his grace, his power through faith in every aspect of our being. And so each time we are feeling that we are dying, those who belong to God it's not purposeless it's not senseless but it's to lead to life the way God has designed it for us the last question I'll ask this is do you correct yourself by that truth of the gospel when you're discouraged or do you do like Martha does here cling to your doctrine and go about your religious politeness We need not to be afraid to deal with our questions and bring the gospel to bear on it because the gospel is not fragile. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for life, to all who are believing. When we recognize that, we have not only freedom, we have joy regarding, regardless of our circumstances. May God bless us with the perspective and the courage and the faith to believe and to experience all he promises. Father, open our eyes to see your glory. And to see what you are doing in this world and in our lives open our hearts to love what you love and to love you enough to subordinate our purposes to yours. Pour out your grace as you have promised that as we are in line with the purpose that you have designed us for, we would find joy beyond our ability to explain. but that we long to experience. Bless us from the example of these pages, rooting us in the truth of he who is the resurrection and the life. Amen.